At the height of last summer's Black Lives Matter protests, infographics about the enormous gap between white and black wealth in the United States started appearing on daytime TV shows and across social media. And the statistics, that the average white household's net worth is 10 times higher than that of the average black household, and that the gap has actually grown since 1968, are standard talking points in any introductory lesson on systemic racism in this country. So let's do a quick review and we'll focus on wealth, not income. The average black household in the United States holds less than seven cents on the dollar compared to the average white household. That's true even in the lowest income bracket. The average white household living below the poverty line has about $18,000 in wealth, while the average black household living below the poverty line has a median income just above zero dollars. So when nationwide protests in the summer of 2020 put a spotlight on the wealth gap, Two long-standing proposed solutions also appeared in that spotlight. In June, long-standing calls to support black-owned businesses picked up steam. Lists of black-owned businesses in major cities circulated on Twitter and Instagram. And some small business owners saw a wave of first-time customers, many of them white. Activists and influencers are calling for people to start spending their money at black-owned businesses. The idea and in July... Asheville, North Carolina made national headlines when its city council passed what they called a reparations initiative, allocating city dollars to programs intended to expand access to home ownership and career opportunities for black residents. Just this week, the city council of Asheville, North Carolina, unanimously voted to provide reparations to black residents of the city. In the same initiative, Asheville City Council also joined a growing chorus of elected officials, economists, and activists calling for a nationwide reparations program to compensate the descendants of those enslaved in the United States. So let's put these two proposals side by side. Calls to support black-owned businesses have found traction among white people for at least a century, including presidential administrations. Calls for reparations, on the other hand, have never found any significant traction among white Americans. But generations of more or less widespread white support for the concept of black entrepreneurship hasn't closed the wealth gap. Is that because white support for black entrepreneurship is just lip service? Or would it require more than just investments in black-owned businesses to rectify the wealth gap? From KUAF Public Radio and with funding from the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, I'm Paul Kiefer, and this is The Movement That Never Was, a People's Guide to Anti-Racism in the South and Arkansas. So unlike previous episodes, this one isn't as narrowly focused on the South or on Arkansas. But there's a good reason for that. The wealth gap is a nationwide issue, not just a Southern one. And in fact, the wealth gap in the South is generally not as wide as it is in some other parts of the country. But because the wealth gap is a nationwide issue, most calculations about how to address it wind up centering on the one institution that unites the entire country, the federal government, and a version of federal support for black-owned businesses, successful or not, and significant or not, dates to well before the civil rights era. Specifically, it began in 1927, with a little-known office called the Division of Negro Affairs within the U.S. Department of Commerce. And, and again, we have to look at that particular moment in time where when we look at, at the African-American community, there really wasn't a sort of broad-based movement at, in the 20s 
for racial desegregation. That's Professor Robert Weems. He teaches history at Wichita State University in Kansas. In, in fact, during the 1920s, you had the rise of something called, you know, the Black Metropolis Movement, where, you know, African Americans were essentially willing to, you know, live in racially segregated enclaves with the proviso that they would be able to have a greater, you know, control over, you know, the economics of of African-American communities. And Professor Weems said that the division of Negro affairs remained a pretty uncontroversial feature of the Commerce Department for another two and a half decades, under both Republican and Democratic presidents. It only served a relatively small number of black business owners in its brief existence, but by the end of the Second World War, the division developed a secondary purpose. And on one level, quite frankly, uh, the Division of Negro Affairs kind of served as a, a propaganda tool for the U.S., especially as we move into the Cold War era. Because, among other things, these stories of, you know, black business success could be used you know, to quell sort of growing international skepticism or concern about the treatment of of, of African Americans in the United States. And as time went on, promoting black business ownership shifted from being a tool for polishing America's reputation abroad to being a tool for calming tensions at home. By the mid-1960s, the Division of Negro Affairs was gone. In its place, the Small Business Administration was handling outreach to black entrepreneurs, and the Johnson administration's definition of civil rights incorporated the notion that black business ownership would improve black upward mobility. But for the elected officials watching cities across the country erupt into riots at the end of the civil rights era, promoting black entrepreneurship took on a new significance. And literally, as we move into the mid to late 1960s, when we see, you know, African-American anger, you know, boiling over uh, across the country, Increasingly, there was this thought that increasing uh, or, in fact, actively promoting African-American entrepreneurship would be uh, an effective means to quell uh, black violence. Because it was very clear to many observers that in places like Detroit, Chicago and other places across the country, when people were destroying property, one of the primary targets were white-owned businesses in black neighborhoods. And there was increasingly this thought that if you had, you know, African-American businesses, you know, in these communities, that that would, in fact, help to diminish some of that, that anger. And that idea, the notion that promoting black business ownership could assuage the anger of black communities without making any more transformative changes to the distribution of wealth in the United States, became known as black capitalism. And while black capitalism is best remembered as a key feature of the Nixon administration, in 1968, prominent white politicians across the political spectrum embraced the idea. You know, when we look at 1968, and we think of the term black capitalism, you know, we tend primarily to associate it with with Richard Nixon because he won the 68 election. But when you look at, you know, the campaigns of all the major candidates, all of them, you know, were actively promoting, for lack of a better way of putting it, 
black capitalism. And if, and if Hubert Humphrey had won, if Bobby Kennedy had won, if Nelson Rockefeller had won on, on the Republican side, they, in fact, would have promoted, you know, this notion of enhanced African-American entrepreneurship. So, uh, again, in, in 68, you know, black capitalism became pretty much the, the, the primary uh, paradigm in, in terms of how to best reach, you know, black voters. But as it turns out, Nixon won the election, so we tend to associate that notion with him, but he did not originate it. But Nixon also tried to use black capitalism to win support within the emerging black power movement. In speeches on the subject, Nixon cast black capitalism as the path towards black self-sufficiency. And in the process, he picked up endorsements from a handful of well-known black nationalists. One of them, a lawyer from Durham, North Carolina named Floyd McKissick, spoke opposite Muhammad Ali at the University of Arkansas in 1969. But Nixon also realized that the message of black capitalism wouldn't push away the white segregationists because he was after their votes, too. You know, people talk about, you know, Nixon's Southern strategy. And on one level, his promotion of the Southern strategy and his promotion of black business development weren't necessarily, you know, antagonistic because in the South there had been a whole tradition of African-Americans operating in a separate economic sphere. So on one level, you know, Nixon could, on one side of his mouth, be speaking to white Southerners in terms of, you know, the so-called Southern strategy. And out of the other side of his mouth, he could be talking to to African-Americans that were interested in uh, enhanced business formation. Nixon wasn't the first to realize that promoting black entrepreneurship didn't require challenging the racial status quo. But Professor Weems said that he seized upon the post-civil rights era anger about persistent racial inequality to cast black entrepreneurship as the path forward. In doing so, Nixon placed much of the responsibility for addressing the wealth gap in the hands of black entrepreneurs and the customers themselves and not in the hands of white Americans. That's why in this whole field of minority business enterprise, much of which will begin small but can eventually grow until it's big, you have such a challenge, a challenge that we want to work with you on. Even after Nixon's resignation in 1974, promoting black entrepreneurship remained one of the few projects on which both Democratic and Republican administrations could agree. These programs, you know, continued uh, well after Nixon left office. And, and interestingly enough, when we talk about, you know, the Reagan years, that we know Reagan, in fact, you know, cut back on uh, a variety of social programs, which had a, a negative impact on uh, the African-American community. But he also enhanced some of the, you know, uh, uh, black business development uh, agenda. And, and literally, interestingly enough, uh, during uh, the Reagan administration, you had the establishment of Minority Business Development Week, where, you know, again, you had all these sort of ceremonial types of things, but clearly uh, Reagan did not go after black business formation programs the same way he went after, uh, you know, social welfare programs during his administration. 
We've committed the federal government to promote an economic environment in which minority entrepreneurs can fully marshal their talents and skills to make a go of it in the marketplace. If that strategy, using federal dollars to support black business ownership, is the most widely agreed upon approach to government involvement in addressing the wealth gap, is it also the most realistic? The scale and the sustainability of black businesses are so, uh, so, so small and fragile that uh, the amount of resources that would be required to bring uh, black businesses in even the striking distance of the scale and sustainability of white-owned enterprises uh, is, is, uh, is perhaps too staggering to conceive. That's Professor William Darity. He's a public policy professor at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and he specializes in racialized economic inequality. And Professor Darity says that none of the current or past federal programs intended to give a boost to black entrepreneurs could possibly level the playing field for black business owners. Just to illustrate, if you were to take all of the, well, and and these are numbers before the COVID-19 crisis and its impact on black business ownership. Uh, If you were to take all of the black-owned businesses combined their total retail sales are somewhere in the vicinity of one-third to one-half of all of Walmart's sales taken alone. The, the differential is immense if we're thinking about inequality with respect to business ownership and business enterprise. And it's so large that uh, you know the autonomous actions of black folks in terms of using their existing pool of resources cannot cannot anywhere come close to bridging that kind of gap. And Professor Weems added that in the post-civil rights era, the prospects for black entrepreneurs have only gotten worse. One of the things that dramatically decreased black wealth was, you know, the advent of what some might call economic desegregation, where you literally had a situation where, you know, white-owned businesses were able to dramatically increase their market share in terms of of black consumer support, but black companies were not able to increase their market share by getting a greater access to the mainstream marketplace. And Professor Darity said that the programs offered to black entrepreneurs by the federal government for the past half century have never been sufficient to balance the scales for black business ownership. In fact, federal small business loans to black-owned businesses actually declined in the 2010s. Black borrowers received roughly 11% of the Small Business Administration's loans in 2008, but only 2.3% by 2014. But Professor Darity contends that addressing the wealth gap between black and white Americans by focusing on black business ownership is a misstep. From his perspective, business ownership isn't a guaranteed path to wealth. Well, another way to think about it is, are you viewing business ownership as an input to wealth or are you viewing it as an output from wealth? 
And I think people frequently think of business ownership as an input to wealth, but they ignore the dimension that uh, that it actually might be a consequence of the wealth position that people start out with, that that gives them the capacity to uh, to 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 own a business that's that's more likely to be sustainable. So if the real root problem that the country is trying to address is wealth disparity and not business ownership, Darity doesn't think that a massive federal effort to promote black entrepreneurship would have the desired impact. Instead, Darity is one of the country's most prolific advocates for and experts on reparations policies. In his mind, closing the wealth gap between black and white Americans and paying the nation's debts for slavery is only possible through a federally coordinated payout on an unprecedented scale, somewhere in the realm of 10 to $12 trillion, or more than half the country's GDP in 2020. That, he says, would level the disparities between black and white per capita wealth. Let's pause for a second. This isn't the only proposal for addressing the wealth gap. But for anyone who wondered whether their new efforts to spend money in black-owned businesses would help close the wealth gap, it's worth thinking through what a more radical approach would entail. For decades, the national conversation about reparations for slavery has rarely gotten past the question of whether it's the right thing to do, whether the country is still indebted to black Americans for slavery and the injustices that followed. But for Professor Darity, that question has a clear answer. Yes, this country does owe a debt. So that leaves another big question. On a practical level, how would reparations work? Professor Darity has spent years trying to answer that question. The first piece of the puzzle is eligibility. Who would receive the reparations? From Professor Darity's perspective, the point of the program is both to address economic inequality and to address the specific historic injustice of slavery in the United States. So he thinks there should be two criteria. The first is an individual would have to demonstrate that they had at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. And second, that for at least 12 years before the enactment of a reparations plan or the enactment of a study commission for reparations, that they self-identified as Black, Negro, or African American. And Professor Darity added that there are a few ways to figure out when the program would end. One option would be to keep the program open for a set number of years. Another would be to give reparations payments to a set number of generations. The next question, he says, is how the federal government gets the money out the door. There's two ways of thinking about the ways in which the funds could be distributed. Uh, One is direct payments. And then the other is there could be some kind of intermediary agency or organization that would be responsible for allocating the funds, and they could be devoted to a variety of programmatic purposes, uh, neighborhood development, and the like. From his perspective, distributing trillions of dollars through an intermediary organization or through programs with focuses like neighborhood development runs the risk that those dollars might never make it to the hands of their intended recipients. Particularly uh, if you're trying to do it at the neighborhood or community level in a world in which uh, rapid gentrification is taking place. So Professor Darity favors the idea of direct payments. 
and he bases his reasoning on the previous examples of reparations in the United States. In 1988, for instance, President Reagan signed a bill to provide $1.2 billion, or $20,000 a person, to the surviving Japanese Americans who were interned during the Second World War. But he says there are pros and cons to direct payments. The pros and cons are associated with two considerations. Uh, the first is whether or not you want to be paternalistic about how people might use the funds. And so if, if you are paternalistic and, uh, and you, you say, well, I, I really want to uh, constrain or manage the way in which people make use of their reparations payments, something that has never been done in other cases of reparations. But, uh, but if, you're, if you're insistent in going that route, then you probably do not want to make a, uh, a direct cash transfer of the full amount of the, uh, of the reparations uh, payment. You probably want to design it in some way in which uh, you give people an asset that is less liquid. Uh, the, the, the second consideration, though, is a consideration that's associated with every single new federal expenditure program, which is what is the inflation risk. And um, so on the one hand, you could think of a situation in which in a depressed economy, uh, you made a substantial cash transfer to a segment of the community or of the population, and their spending functions as a stimulus to the economy. On the other hand, you could imagine a situation in which uh, the, the, the boundary for expansion of the economy is relatively limited in a particular moment. Uh, it might be limited by the presence of a coronavirus, for example. And then, uh, uh, and then that type of infusion of funds would perhaps translate almost exclusively into increases in prices. And so you may want to distribute a reparations payment in such a way that you spread it over time to minimize the inflation risk. But Professor Darity says that the federal government's response to the pandemic, and specifically the $2 trillion CARES Act signed last spring to provide financial assistance to families and businesses impacted by lockdowns, was a case study in how the federal government could provide financial support on a massive scale. But what we're increasingly learning, I think, in the midst of the pandemic, and also as a consequence of the response to the Great Recession, is that the federal government can engage in substantial amount of spending, substantial amounts of spending without being constrained by tax revenues. Uh, uh, the the CARES Act is something where the federal government just funded it because it's sovereign currency issuer. It can put put new sums of money into people's accounts uh, just on an accounting basis. And so it uh, does not have to go out and gather the resources, doesn't even have to borrow. Uh, and so, again, the real issue is whether or not the expenditure generates any significant amount of inflation. And that's what, that's what the real danger is that has to, be, has to be taken into account. Professor Darity acknowledged that his version of reparations isn't the only one to consider. But when we're trying to figure out how to address the persistent wealth disparity between white and black Americans, 
considering the practical details of one version of reparations is a good starting point. Earlier this month, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives also renewed a decades-old effort to get the federal government involved in thinking through the possibility of reparations. Sheila Jackson Lee, a Democratic representative from Houston, reintroduced a bill known as H.R. 40, which would create a federal commission that would, among other things, create proposals for reparations for slavery in the United States. H.R. 40 has made an annual appearance in the House of Representatives since 1989, when the late Michigan Congressman John Conyers first introduced the proposal. And reparations are not poised to receive the same kind of bipartisan support in the way that federal programs for black entrepreneurs have. But with reparations in the spotlight after a year of racial justice protests, the bill feels less symbolic than it has in the past. Thanks for listening. The Movement That Never Was, A People's Guide to Anti-Racism in the South and Arkansas, is a production of KUAF Public Radio, made possible by the support of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. It's written and executive produced by Paul Kiefer. And our theme was composed by Kevin Black.